that uh, Dr. William Wood, he was supposed to be our speaker tonight, and his whole family uh, contracted COVID, and he tested positive just yesterday. So that was just one among many things that uh, has been going on of late, that and tornadoes and power outages and, and the rest. But uh, so I know the Lord is going to bless this conference because <laughs> there's been so much tribulation coming before it. We, uh, we are glad that you're here. We're going to study together. Um, we are looking forward, as far as I know, all the other speakers are coming. So uh, <clears throat> we look forward to, to that. Otherwise, it's going to be late nights for me. If you have your Bible, let's look at Isaiah 2, and we're going to look at the first four verses tonight. First four verses. Our theme, as you know, is uh, thy kingdom come. And uh, we are going to be discussing uh, this most important theme about the kingdom of God. Again, we want to always rely on the Holy Spirit uh, to bless our time together. So let's pray again and ask God for help. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come acknowledging that daily do we sin against you. As David said, our sins are more numerous than the hairs on our head. But we thank you for the atonement of Jesus Christ who washes away all our sin. We thank you that Jesus came into this world to fulfill that which the blood of goats and bulls and calves could not do. We thank you for his perfect righteousness, his obedience. We thank you for his willingness to humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, that he might drink the cup of your wrath in our place, that we might have eternal life. We praise you for raising him from the dead on the third day, bodily according to the scriptures, and that you have caused him to take his rightful throne in heaven and to reign and to build his kingdom. Lord, we come tonight asking for the blessing of the Spirit of Christ, that he might be with us, strengthening, Lord, these exercises that the Holy Spirit would be pleased to bring unction and power, not, Lord, for our own glory, but for the glory of you and of your Son, the Lord Jesus, and for the building up of your kingdom. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's read Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. My preference is the New American Standard. The, wor the word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Amen. Now, one of the goals of our conference is to help us think biblically about the nature of the present and the future coming of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was an important theme in the life of our Lord and Savior. Even prior to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, John the Baptist's words in preparation for the coming of Jesus were these, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. And that is that John was stating that the kingdom of God, long anticipated by the law and the and the Psalms and the prophets, was now entering into its inaugural state in the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And one of my hopes is that as we think about the kingdom of God, one of my prayers has been this, is that we would indeed get a vision of the kingdom that really would uh, inspire us, I say that in a non-theological sense, um, that would move our ardor for Christ and that also would really help build the kingdom uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, that this conference would uh, exceed our own expectations and that God would use this conference to be a blessing to all the churches that are represented here tonight. Jesus, when he began his public ministry, he echoed the words that John told the people in preparation. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus began to preach, we are told, by Matthew, quote, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. In Luke chapter 17, in verse 21, Jesus answered the Pharisees' questions about the kingdom coming. They wanted to know when would it be there. And Jesus told them plainly, the kingdom of God is in your midst, speaking of himself as the king standing before them. And yet this theme of the kingdom, which is so central to the public ministry of John and the Lord Jesus Christ, has a lot of confusion surrounding it, particularly in the last two centuries, the 19th and the 20th century. There's been a lot of confusion and, and dispute about what is exactly the kingdom of God. Is the kingdom of God something that is here and something that is near and something that is present? Or is the kingdom of God something super um, in the distance, in, in, in the future? This is just some kind of parenthetical age that we're going through until the kingdom comes uh, with the, the coming of Christ and the setting up of a millennium. Well, I, I am going tonight to try and help persuade you, if you're not already persuaded, of the former, that the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ has been already inaugurated through the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ascension at the right hand of God, and that the kingdom of God is, as Jesus said, among you, and the kingdom of God is present even where two or more gather, there Christ is in our midst. My hope is that this weekend you will appreciate the significance of the kingdom of Christ and in such a way that you will appreciate the significance of Christ in order to pray, to worship, to think, to work, to recreate, God willing, to marry, to procreate, to disciple, and engage the culture with the world in the light of the knowledge of the kingdom of Christ in your daily life, that the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God, would impact you in such a way that whether you eat or drink, all would be done to the glory of God. That with the realization of the light of Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, in Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, that you would recognize your life is not in vain, your work is not in vain, your words that you sow are not in vain. My hope is that this conference would be a blessing to you in that regard. Now, our, our sessions are intentional because what we're planning to do through each of these sessions is bring you to another, uh, if you will, revelation from the scriptures of the development of the kingdom of God. And we're going to start with the prophets tonight. And then tomorrow in the morning, we're going to go and look at the kingdom of Christ from the Psalms. And then on Sunday, Lord willing, we will look at the kingdom of Christ uh, from the Gospels, and then finally, Sunday night, from John's revelation to us. And, and so that is what we are trying to do, to show that the theme of the kingdom of God is indeed throughout the whole of scriptures. So tonight we're going to begin with the prophets here, and we look at Isaiah. So let's look again at our text here, and I want to divide this into two parts. The first main part is going to be what I'm calling the prophetic vision of the coming of the kingdom of God described by Isaiah here in these four verses. The prophetic vision of the coming kingdom of God. And then secondly, in kind of good Puritan style, I'm going to give you at least three different thoughts, main thoughts and applications uh, to this 
vision of Isaiah's here. So let's look at point number one, the prophetic vision of the coming kingdom of God. Now, if you look in your Bible here, you'll note in verse one, it says that the word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, uh, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days, <clears throat> the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it and many peoples will come and say, and we'll go on from there, come let us go to the mountain of the Lord. Now in order to understand Isaiah's words here, we have to first of course begin with the context. And the context here is that this prophecy of the vision of the kingdom of, of God is in the context of what is known as a covenantal lawsuit. What is a covenantal lawsuit? It, it's much like it sounds. That this covenantal lawsuit here is God coming, if you will, as a holy plaintiff, bringing a lawsuit against his own people, particularly in the, in the 10 northern tribes, which experienced the greatest apostasy. You have to understand that since the days of Solomon, you had the division of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Jeroboam in the 10 northern tribes, Rehoboam in the south. But Jeroboam led Israel into a steep apostasy very quickly, introducing two golden calves, one to be set up in Bethel, another to be set up in Dan. And he set up these false places of worship so that the people would not continue to go down to Jerusalem in order to worship the true and living God, in order that the people of God would not go down to Zion. They would not go down to Jerusalem and they would not go and worship the Lord there. He feared that if he allowed the people to do that, that, that politically he would lose power. And so he sets up these rival uh, altars and establishes a caste of false priests. Even to the point the corruption was so great that later in the history of Israel, many of the faithful among God's people, including the Levites, emigrated out of the 10 northern tribes down to Judah to escape the corruption. Now, if you look at Isaiah chapter 6 here, God calls Isaiah to be a prophet and to preach to the people of God. But notice here in Isaiah 6 that the preaching was to be a preaching unto a judgment. And I want to emphasize this here to set the table for what we're going to see in these four verses in chapter 2. Remember in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah hears the call. He sees the vision, the glory of God. He says, woe is me. I'm a, uh, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and I've seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And then you have the atonement with the angel of the Lord taking the coal and touching Isaiah's lips. And then the Lord says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Now listen to what the Lord tells Isaiah here. He, says, he said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Now listen to verse 10. He says, render the hearts of this people insensitive. Their ears dull, their eyes dim. He says, I want you to preach, but as, I pre as you preach, it's going to be a judgment upon them. They're not going to understand. They're not going to believe, and they're not going to repent. Now why would God do this? Look at verse 11. He says, how long, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated, and without inhabitants, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. Why does God do this? Well, because the people of God have been so corrupt and so unfaithful that God is going to bring this holy judgment against his own people. Now, I say that because when you go back to chapter 2 here, you have to understand that this is what makes the first four verses of chapter 2 so amazing is that in the midst of this covenantal lawsuit and this judgment, preaching the people of God into captivity, yet in the midst of it, there is a vision of hope and future for Israel. That is, despite the judgment of God upon his own people for their sins, God is doing what? He is not utterly forsaking his covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is, to put it in the words of Paul, as Paul says in Romans Behold the wrath and the mercy of God. To some judgment and to others, grace. And so I want you to keep that in mind now as we look at this amazing 
prophetic promise to the people of God in an era of apostasy and judgment. So look at verse 2. It says, Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. So let's look at that first phrase, in the last days. Now this, of course, uh, creates some of the controversy that no doubt many of you have read or heard. Because when oftentimes people hear the words in the last days, they think what? Well, they think the final weeks or months, maybe the final years before the second coming of Christ. But I want to suggest to you something else that's going on here. This is a phrase that is also picked up in the New Testament. And so that what is being said here is in these last days, it's not necessarily referring to the final couple years of history, but rather to an era or an epoch. That is the era of Christ. Now you say, well, pastor, how do you in the world get in the last days and meaning the age of Christ and the inauguration of his ministry? Don't you believe the Bible literally? Yes, I do. I believe that the Bible is the literal, inerrant, and infallible word of God. But we have to interpret the Bible literally as it is meant to be interpreted. And this, I believe, is a a prophetic language here describing the kingdom of God in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you want to see an example of this, for example, Hebrews chapter 1. Many of you maybe know where I'm going already with this. But in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, What does the author of Hebrews say? He said, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, like Isaiah, right? Like Jeremiah, like Ezekiel, like Daniel. God spoke long ago to the fathers, to the Israelites, in the prophets. He says, in many portions and in many ways, through visions, through dreams, right? But look at verse 2. The author of Hebrews says, however, in these last, what? in these last days. Now that was written almost 2,000 years ago. That is, the author of Hebrews here is telling us that in the last days began with what? The coming of Jesus. Notice here he says, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom Also, he made the world. My argument is this, friends, that the author of Hebrews, I think, is telling us how we should come to Isaiah chapter 2 here. He's telling us here that in these last days, what Isaiah is doing is he's looking ahead to the time of Christ. The, The mountain of Zion, the mountain of the Lord, of the house of the Lord, in these last days, will come, and that these last days here are referring to the advent of Christ, the coming of Christ, not the second coming, but it's being inaugurated in the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember what Jesus said? Um, Those who are in my church, they hear me say this all the time, but, you know, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he says, you search the scriptures because what? In them you think you have eternal life. And he said, they speak of me. Isaiah is speaking of Christ, the mountain of the house of the Lord. Let's go on here. It says, in the last days, which I'm arguing here is from the time of Christ's first coming all the way to the time of his second coming, in this last era, that is, there's no other era except this final coming of Christ. In this last days, last era, The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. Now, what is the significance of the mountain of the house of the Lord? Well, the mountain of the house of the Lord is a prophetic picture of Zion. To every Jew in the original audience who would have been hearing Isaiah preach this, who would have been reading Isaiah, they would have known here that Isaiah here is talking about Jerusalem and about the temple chiefly. The house of the Lord was in in the city of David. Now what some of our dispensationalist friends try to do is they, they try to interpret this in a very wooden, geological, topological manner. Meaning that they, if I remember from John Walvoord's book from 
Dallas Seminary. He believed that there would be this literal uh, moving up of the mountain of the Lord here. And I think this wooden interpretation is a mistake here. Isaiah has something far more glorious than a topological uh, or geograph ge uh, geological shift in the earth here. Something more glorious is going on. What is Isaiah doing here? Speaking of this mountain of the house of the Lord being established as the chief mountains and being raised up above the hills. He is speaking in a beautiful and prophetic way. A beautiful imagery is supposed to be painted in our mind. And it's supposed to capture your imagination and build up your faith. That is, it's the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ being built up in the earth here. The mountain of the house of the Lord is what? It is the place that is home to the kingdom of God. It's the place where what? The temple is, where the sacrifices are. And what's the significance of that? The, the, the significance of the temple is that God's name dwells there, that the sacrifices are offered there, that the word of God is preached there, that the songs of Zion are sung there. All of this points to our Lord Jesus Christ. Just as the sacrifice of the animals uh, points to Christ, Jesus is what? The Lamb of God. John the Baptist declared at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Behold the Lamb of God, who what? Takes away the sins of the world. The animals couldn't take away any of our sins at the temple. The, the, the temple was pointing to Christ. It's a picture of Christ. It's a type of Christ there in Zion. How do you come to have a relationship with God? How do you come to worship God? But only through Christ. Only through the atonement of Christ. Signified in, in the sacrifices. The temple is the place where the word is proclaimed. What does John tell us in his opening chapter of the gospel? That Jesus is the word. Come in the flesh. This is why in John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus even said, tear down this temple, and I will rebuild it. And, of course, that confused everybody. They had that dispensational hermeneutic, that wooden hermeneutic, saying, it took 46 years to build this temple. What do you mean tear it down and you'll rebuild it in three days? And John tells us, well, don't interpret the Bible like a dispensationalist. <laughs> he says, Jesus is speaking of his body. But Jesus' point is that his life, death, and resurrection is going to supplant the need for a temple. This is why in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus even prophesies over Jerusalem that within one generation, the temple would be destroyed. And indeed, it was in AD 70. It's never been rebuilt. Because Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the house of the Lord. So, what then are, are we to see here? What we are to see when Isaiah speaks, and of course Isaiah is going to speak in the language of the Old Covenant. I mean, that's what he knew. That's what the people of God knew. Remember, the, 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 the people of God in the Old Testament, though it uses language of a different administration in the covenant of grace, it is still pointing us uh, to Christ and his fulfilling work. So when we see that it's the mountain of the house of the Lord to be established and it is going to be raised above all the other hills and the nations will stream to it here, this is a glorious picture of Jesus Christ building his church. Isaiah longed to look into the things he prophesied. You have to understand, Isaiah did not fully comprehend everything he was writing down. As one of my professors said, sometimes Isaiah went home and Mrs. Isaiah said, what did you write today? And he would say, well, I, I wrote about a, a great mountain that's, that's going to become the chief mountain in the earth in the mountain of the Lord. And, and Mrs. Isaiah likely said, well, what do you think that means? And, and Isaiah would say, I, I don't fully understand. But this is, this is what God has given us. It, 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 we know it points to the Messiah. Isn't it interesting? Daniel also sees a mountain. You remember the uh, statue of Nebuchadnezzar? And, and uh, you, remember the, you remember the different nations um, in, in the statue? And 
Remember how there was a rock that was not cut by human hands and it struck the statue and the statue collapses and becomes like chaff and is blown away and then what happens to the rock? It becomes this huge mountain, fills the earth. And so what we see here is Isaiah and I think Daniel as well, they see something of a mountain that grows and it grows uh, throughout all the nations. The nations come streaming to it. It's a picture, really, of the Great Commission. Jesus in Matthew chapter 28, I think fulfilling the streaming of the nations to the mountain, tells his disciples to go and disciple all the nations, commanding them to observe all that I have taught you. John, in his Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, he sees the climax of this prophetic picture. John gets a vision of the final state of heaven. And what does he see? He says that he sees a great multitude without number from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And they're, they're dressed in the, in the garments of justification, in the white righteousness of Christ. We have to understand that Scripture speaks of Jesus. That is Jesus' own hermeneutical point to the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees and the scribes. The scriptures speak of Christ. Christ is the central motif and the theme of your whole Bible. Whether you're reading in Genesis, whether it's in Leviticus, whether it's in the Psalms, whether it's in the prophets, they speak of him. And so does Isaiah here. He speaks of the kingdom of Christ. Isaiah and the prophets were concerned about this theme of the kingdom of God, and Isaiah saw, even in the age of apostasy that he was living in, even in a time when God is bringing a covenantal lawsuit, he doesn't want the people of God to lose hope. God will not forsake his covenant. And so he gives them a vision of these last days in which Jesus Christ will be reigning on the throne in the heavenly Jerusalem, bringing forth his spirit and through the word of God, advancing his kingdom. Despite the idolatry of Isaiah's day, God would see to it that you and I become the children of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3 verse 7 says, Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith in Christ who are what? The sons of Abraham. Meaning this, here we have a picture of the nations coming streaming unto Zion. And what does Paul tell us in Galatians? He says that when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you become a son and a daughter of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says this, In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And isn't that what Isaiah is essentially saying here? He says that he may teach us. Who's the us here? Well, the us are the nations, the peoples. It says many peoples will come. Who are these many peoples? They're peoples from all over the world will come. Look at verse 4, and then I want to get to the thoughts and the applications here. Finally, as prophets have a tendency to do, I believe now verse 4 speaks of the consummated state of the kingdom. Now, prophets don't have a problem. You have to understand, prophets do not have the problem of speaking about things near them in their own day, then suddenly speaking about things in the time of Christ, and then speaking about things at the end of history, in eternity. And that's what Isaiah is doing. He's coming in the context of his own age of apostasy. He's preaching about the inauguration of the age of Christ and the kingdom of Christ and the growth of Christ's kingdom in the world. But then he moves, I believe, in verse 4. Now, some post-millennialists would, I think, probably attribute verse 4 to some kind of earthly millennium prior to the second coming. But I think the language is, is, is so strong that Isaiah has even gone over into the consummated state, the new heavens and the new earth. That is this, that the, the, the church will continue to grow the nations will continue to be discipled. The Great Commission will continue to be fulfilled. The gospel will be preached to all the earth. As Paul says in the book of Romans, the fullness of the Gentiles will be brought in. You have the conversion of the Jews. And then what? Then you have this other 
point, he says, where the nations, he will judge between the nations. Sounds like maybe even the final judgment. He will render decisions for many people. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. I think here that Isaiah is really giving us a picture of Revelation chapter 21 and 22. The final glorious state of love and holiness and perfection. That is, he is moving from history that is near to history that is far from his perspective, 700 years before Christ, and then to eternity itself. You know, Jonathan Edwards spoke about the consummate state, the final state is that what he called the world of love. And I think Isaiah is seamlessly moving us into the new heavens and the earth here. We're a world of perfect peace. And there is perfect peace because why? There's perfect righteousness. And this is the same thing John the Apostle does in the book of Revelation. He takes the believer from the history that the, the early church in the first century is experiencing finally up into the eternity. Sinclair Ferguson described it somewhat as like walking in around in a circular staircase that keeps going up. John starts off with things that are going on in the church to the seven churches, and then he eventually takes you back up to heaven, and then he brings you back down, and he's dealing with things on the earth, and he takes you back up to heaven. And I think Isaiah's doing the same thing. Isaiah's beginning in this age of apostasy where he's to preach them into an Assyrian captivity, but yet he gives them hope and he shows them that the kingdom of Christ is growing and it'll reach that final state of the new heavens and the new earth. Now let me give you here the applications that I want to give in three parts here. Thoughts and applications. Three things. First of all, Isaiah anticipates in Jesus Christ, I believe the present historical reality that the, the kingdom of Christ is now. Think with me about Jesus meeting the woman at the well in John chapter 4. What did Jesus say to her when they got into a theological discussion about where to worship? She said, we Samaritans think we should worship on this mountain. You Jews, you say you got to worship at Zion. And what did Jesus say to her? He said, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when what? Neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Will you worship the Father? Now, think about that for a second. Jesus is saying a time is coming and now is when you don't have to worship the Father in Jerusalem. Did Jesus forget Isaiah chapter 2 about the, the Mount Zion growing and the nations coming streaming to it? No. What Jesus is doing here is he's telling us the meaning of Isaiah chapter 2. He's, as he says in John 4, verse 23, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. So that we see that the kingdom is present, is a present reality. Jesus tells us that it, it doesn't matter. It won't matter which mountain. It doesn't matter where you are geographically in the world. Aren't you glad that we don't have to get a, a Delta or a United Airlines ticket tonight and go to Jerusalem to worship the Lord? But the kingdom of Christ has come to us. The temple has come to us in Jesus Christ. And though he has been removed from us bodily, he is what? He's given us the spirit. The spirit of Christ dwells within us. And now what does Peter say? You are a living stone. And we are gathered here tonight in the name of Christ as living stones. And what are we doing? We have formed the new temple. The new covenant temple is the people of God. And therefore, it doesn't matter where we are. So long as we are in Christ. Secondly, the kingdom of Christ, I want us to see here, the kingdom of Christ grows by the word of God. Note that the people come to Zion to what? To hear God's word. Listen to what the people say. Many peoples will come and say, come let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that what? He may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. The people of God are coming to Zion to hear preaching and teaching and that they, their lives would be affected by the teaching and preaching so that they would walk, they would walk obediently, walk in his paths. The people are coming to hear the word of God. 
So the mission and the purpose of Christ's kingdom is chiefly to minister the word of God along with the sacraments. That is to disciple all the earth. That's the chief task of the church. It is the word that God uses and that the spirit uses to draw the people to God himself. This is, this is why we as a church have to stick to the means of grace. Not the fog machines and the lights and the, you know, the, the rest of the stuff that goes on, but the preaching of the word. Notice that, that Isaiah tells us that the people, when they are regenerated, when they are wrought upon by the spirit of God, they want to hear preaching. They want to be fed. And, and if you delight in scripture, uh, take comfort that this is a, a good sign of God's work in you. We should be concerned when we are not hungry for the word. Now, of course, only the spirit of God can do this. Romans chapter 9, Ephesians 2, John 6, all of these passages whereby we see that the spirit is sovereign in this. But this is the, the, the way that the mission is accomplished. This is the way that the church grows. This is what we have to stick to, the teaching and the preaching of the word of God. It doesn't have to always be the formal preaching of the word here in the pulpit. It can be the sowing of the word in 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 your own personal conversations with your neighbors, that God uses these conversations. How many of us have come to Christ because people had conversations with us? I know I'm one of those people. I can even remember in college asking a friend, why did you become a Christian? I heard you became a Christian. And what did he do? Well, he, he did the best he could as a brand new convert himself to, to talk about the Bible, talk about Jesus Christ. But here's the third and the, and the final point for us tonight here. And probably, maybe in many ways, I hope the most practical for you. And that, thirdly, this. Based on the other two applications, namely, number one, that the kingdom is a present reality now, and that the mountain is growing through the word of God, we also know that our work, your work, your lives in the Lord are not in vain. Even if at times you have trouble seeing positive results, or things seem impossibly set against the church or against you in your own service to Christ. This is what I want you to take away from tonight. Number one, the mountain is growing. <laughs> the mountain is here, and the mountain is wondrously growing. Now, I have many times challenged my own church on this point. Because all too often, and I think it was Brother Gavin who I heard this from, many times we get our eschatology with our eyes. And that's a mistake. You need to get your eschatology from the scripture. It's not what we see with our natural eyes that tells us the truth of necessarily what's going on. I want to illustrate it this way. Think with me. You're there living in the camp with Abraham and Sarah. And it's Genesis chapter 15. And God comes to Abraham, an old man who's got an old wife. And God says to Abraham, Abraham, guess what? I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And if you can count the stars above here at night, so shall your descendants be. Now it almost seems almost like a joke, right? In fact, we know Sarah later does laugh, doesn't she, when she finds out. It almost seems like God is kind of, you know, putting a, pulling a fast one on Abraham. And yet, what does Hebrews chapter 11, verses 12 through 14 tell us? It's very instructive, I think. The Bible tells us, even as Genesis 15, that Abraham believed God. Incredible as it was. He believed God and it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Now what does that mean for us here tonight? It means this, that God, well excuse me, that it means this, that Abraham believed God and he wasn't looking at his own physical body. Hebrews says his own physical body was as good as dead. He didn't look to the barrenness of Sarah's womb, but to the promise of God, promises of God. My point is this, likewise, like Father Abraham, you and I, who are the children of Abraham, 
we are called to live by that same principle of faith in Christ, in the word of God. We, we do not derive our understanding of future kingdom events by looking around us and looking at the newspaper. We look at the promises of God. We trust that Jesus Christ is doing what Isaiah said he would do in Isaiah chapter 2, that he will build his church. That Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell, the defenses, if you will, of hell will, what? They will lose. So what does that mean for you and me? Well, it means this, for example. When you believe the Bible, despite what you see with your natural eyes, and, and, and our natural eyes can deceive us. And we can think all is lost, all is going bad. There's nothing left but the hope of a secret rapture out of this place. But that's where we have to say, but wait a minute, self. What does the Bible say? I'm not supposed to meditate and think what my natural eyes think it sees, but I'm to look at the promise of God. That's where you get your energy. That's where you get your strength. That's where you get your motivation to persevere. Listen, Jesus told us the one promise, you'll never hear it on the Name It, Claim It channels. Um, Jesus promises there will be many trials and tribulations before we enter the kingdom. And so what is going to fortify us to keep going? What, what's going to keep you going in developing friendships with non-believers when so few of them seem interested in Christ right now? What's going to keep you persevering in outreach to others? What's going to keep you persevering in an outreach Bible study that very few people seem to want to attend? What's going to keep you inviting people to church, even though everybody says, oh, no, thank you? What's going to keep you laboring in a difficult industry? Maybe God's called you to a vocation, and there's very little Christian fellowship in that vocation. Maybe you're in a vocation that kind of has the reputation of being hostile to Christianity, if you're in the arts. What's going to keep you going in that? One of the things that can keep you going is to think God is causing Zion to grow. Mount Zion is growing, despite what I might see around me. Looking at Zion and the growth of, of Zion as the chief mountain in the earth will give you motivation to pray as well. Why is the prayer meeting the worst attended meeting in the church? What, is, what do you think is the cause of the lack of attendance whether it's corporate prayer or maybe even private prayer. One of my own thoughts is that it could be that deep down we're sinners, children of Abra, uh, children of Adam and Eve. Even in Christ, that sin nature has not been eradicated. And maybe deep down we harbor some kind of stubborn, deep-seated suspicion that Zion is really not growing and our prayers really don't make a difference. How is it that saying the name of a particular missionary and praying for God's blessing and protection and help actually will translate into something happening in that missionary's life that causes that missionary to have some small measure of success? The temptation is to think our prayers don't matter. And if our prayers don't matter, then it really doesn't matter if I show up for the midweek meeting for prayer, does it? because prayer really doesn't make much of a difference. I can't see how prayer contributes. But we're not called to look with our natural eyes again here, but to the promises of God. Maybe you feel like it doesn't matter how hard you work or how much you pray, things always seem to be the same. Look with me here at Luke chapter 18 here. Luke chapter 18. Because Jesus here gave us some instruction for discouraged Christians when it came to the matter of prayer. And he tells us a parable. And he, Luke tells us why Jesus gave us this parable. In verse 1, Luke 18, verse 1, he says, Now he, Jesus, was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. And then he gives the parable. In a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. 
For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, he's not saying God is unrighteous. That's not the point. But he is saying, from our perspective, at times it may seem as though our Father is not listening. And we keep praying, and nothing is changing. And what does Jesus say? He says, consider the importunate widow here. She keeps bothering him, giving him no rest until what? Until, as one of the other Old Testament prophets says, until he makes Zion the praise of the earth. You and I are not to listen to the lying whisper of the devil. The devil wants to come and say, give less of yourself to Jesus. Because if you give more of yourself to Jesus, you're only going to do so in vain. He's holding out on you. And Satan is trying to plant suspicions within us that he planted within our first parents that turned them against God in the garden. But Isaiah is showing us what happens in his kingdom, in the kingdom of God. Your work, whatever God has called you to do, is not in vain. And the reason for that, the guarantee of that is what? Jesus has been raised from the dead. Did you know that? In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives his most lengthy explanation and apologetic for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what's one of the applications he gives at the end of 1 Corinthians 15? The application is your life is not in vain because Jesus has been raised from the dead. You can look at the promises of God, be encouraged, and know that despite what we may or may not see with our eyes, and God does give us encouragements. I'm not saying God never does. But he will at times test us to see if we are looking to the promises, the visions of the prophets of the coming kingdom of Christ. Now, let me ask us, and I'm going to bring it to a close here. Did our fathers, our Presbyterian and Reformed fathers, have a dim view of God's purposes? Was their chief hope simply for Christ to take them out of this world? God forbid. In John chapter 17, verse 15, Jesus even prays that Christ's disciples not be taken out of this world, but to keep them from the evil one. I want to do something with you here. I want you to take the hymnal with me. And I want you to turn to the back of the hymnal to page 965 because I want you to see what your theological forefathers said about this issue and about Mount Zion growing to be the chief mountain in the earth. I want you to turn to page 965 and I want you to look at the lower right column Larger Catechism, question 191. Everybody there? Now I'm going to read the question, and I want us together slowly, so we can take it in. I want us together to read this answer here. It's, it's on this page, and it, it, it bleeds over onto the next page. All right, so let me read the question. And I want you to think as you read at what the, at what the Westminster Divines said. What do we pray for in the second petition? together in the second petition which is thy kingdom come acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and satan we pray that the kingdom of sin and satan may be destroyed the gospel propagated throughout the world the jews called the fullness of the Gentiles brought in, the church furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances, purged from corruption, countenanced and maintained by the civil magistrate, that the ordinances of Christ may be purely dispensed and made effectual to converting those that are yet in their sins, and the confirming comforting and building up of those that are already converted. 
that Christ would rule in our hearts here and hasten the time of his second coming and are reigning with him forever, and that he would be pleased so to exercise the kingdom of his power in all the world as may best conduce to these ends. Amen. Your theological forefathers could write an answer like that to question 191 because they believed in the growing mountain of Zion through Jesus Christ. This was the hope of the prophets. It was the hope of your Puritan fathers. It was the hope of your pilgrim fathers who first settled in this land. It was the hope of the Westminster divines who wrote this catechism. Let me ask you in closing, is the growing kingdom of Jesus Christ that calls in the fullness of the Gentiles and converts the Jews, is that your hope for the kingdom of God? Or have you gotten discouraged? Have you lost your hope? Are you defeated? Are you down? Have you gotten cynical? Are you pessimistic? Have you th are you thinking that Jesus has done the most work he's ever going to do in this world? Maybe your life has lost some of its purpose, some of its sense of meaning, and you're trying to fill it up too much with this world because you've been losing your confidence in Christ's promises or Isaiah's vision. I want you tonight to look by faith to Zion, the mountain of the house of the Lord. Look at what Isaiah saw 700 years before Jesus came. Keep your eyes on this mountain. Have confidence that it's going to grow. Maybe you need to ask God for forgiveness tonight for any unbelief in his promises or smallness or littleness of faith. Maybe you need to ask God to forgive you for looking at life through your natural eyes rather than like Abraham, looking to the promise rather than his natural body. Pray that God not only would pardon you, but motivate you again, fill you with the Spirit, energize you for Christ, renew your joy in the battle. Life is difficult. Life is hard. We are suffering, brethren. But as the Puritans used to say, through our suffering comes victory. We know the outcome of this present war with this evil age. So we need to stop complaining about the state of things and get excited about getting behind Jesus. He's the one who rides the white horse that has the two-edged two sword coming out of his mouth. And if you can't get excited about that, and then maybe you need to come to Jesus for the first time and ask him to regenerate you and soften you and give you a heart of flesh and the gift of faith. And he will. Amen. Let's pray.